Today we are going to be covering what is really um, one of my favorite passages, if not my favorite passage in all of Scripture. And I was, I was a little bit nervous uh, when, when, I, when I knew that we were coming up on this, uh, not because it's my favorite passage, but because I actually preached on this, I think, the second week that I was here, earlier this year. Uh, last week I was telling you guys about how deep and how rich uh, the scriptures can be. And so maybe this is kind of an illustration of that because this sermon is actually going, it's going to be covering the same passage, but it's going to be completely different. Uh, it's kind of taking it from a little bit of a different angle. And that's an example of just how deep and how rich uh, God's word can be. You can do the same passage twice and have totally different messages uh, coming out of it. And the reason that this is um, one of my favorite passages, this passage of this man with the unclean spirits, uh, the reason that it's one of my favorites is it kind of reminds me of uh, a casino dealer that I used to know and what happened to him, if you guys know my story. Uh, that, that, that's me, the casino dealer, that, that's me. So uh, yeah, today we're going to be covering one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But um, let me start out by asking you guys, what are you afraid of? I want you to think about something that strikes you as something that, you're, that causes you fear, causes you anxiety, something that you're afraid of. I mean, we all have fears. Uh, there's nobody uh, who, who is sane anyway who doesn't have fear. Fear is a very natural human emotion. I mean, if we didn't have fear, we'd probably do a lot of stupid things, like maybe you'd become a shark repellent tester or... Um, <laughs> Or something like that. Maybe you'd run into oncoming traffic and, you know, you'd challenge cars on your feet to a game of chicken or, you know, something like that. If you didn't have fear, uh, you know, we'd do all kinds of silly, careless, maybe stupid things. But hopefully you get the point. We, we rely to an extent on fear for our survival. But fear can also uh, make something fun, right? Fear, fear is also kind of an element in adventure. Uh, when I mean, think about the, the first time when, when you rode a roller coaster or a roller coaster that goes upside down. There was probably a degree of fear that you were feeling, and that's, in, in a way, that's what made it an adventure. I'm going to tell you guys kind of a, a silly and maybe even embarrassing story about the first time I rode a roller coaster that went upside down. Uh, I was in Southern California at Knott's Berry Farm, and I had two friends with me. We all had sisters um, younger sisters who played on a, a soccer team together, and their team was in a tournament in Southern California. And so we decided that, uh, or our parents decided really, that the best way for us to spend the day as 12, 13-year-olds uh, was to go to Knott's Berry Farm. Now, Knott's Berry Farm has this thing called Montezuma's Revenge. Uh, if, anybody in here familiar with Montezuma's Revenge? Okay, a lot of you guys are familiar with it. Basically, you, you go upside down, but you don't just go upside down once. You go upside down twice, first forwards and then backwards. And I had never been on a roller coaster before and uh, that, that went upside down. And so looking up at this thing, it was just a monster. And I thought, man, you know what? I don't know if I can ride this, but, you know, I had my friends there with me, right? And, and we all decided, because, we're, we're, you know, we're just, you know, these adventurous kids, uh, 12, 13 years old, we decided we're going to ride it. So we get in line, and it's a long line. It's like half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. And by the time we get up to within two minutes of the front, uh, one of my friends and I both said, 
we got to use the bathroom. I mean, we don't want to ride this as, as badly as we got to go right now. So we got out of line. We went to the bathroom, and we, we came back, and we had to start at the end of the line again. And we, so we go through the line. Once again, we get up within you know, a couple minutes of getting on the ride, and me and the, the same guy, we got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> So, so we jump out of line once again. We, we jump out of line once again. We, we go answer nature's call, and uh, we get back in line. So we're going to have another you know, half hour to an hour wait. And sure enough, we, we get up within two, uh, two or so minutes of the front of the line, and same guy and me. We said, we got to go to the bathroom. And my, my third friend, the third guy, he said, you can hold it. You can hold it long enough. This, this is a quick ride. You can hold it for three minutes. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, we, we, we held it, um, and, and we, we rode Montezuma's Revenge. And th- th- I mean, it looks scary, but, man, that was, that was a crazy uh, and exciting ride. And by the time we got off, of course, we didn't have to go to the bathroom anymore. I'm not sure what that was all about. But the fear that, we, that I had uh, was part of what made that uh, so fun, so adventurous. And so we rode it, actually, a few times. Now, of course... I'm, I'm not really fearful of roller coasters anymore, at least not like I was before that, not, when I was, uh, not like I was when I was 12. But the point I'm trying to make here is that we all have fears, and there are fears that we have to overcome, and there are fears that we have to yield to. Um, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, some things are, are going to hurt us, and, and we're, we're afraid of it for a good reason, and sometimes it's not going to hurt us, and we're afraid of it for an illegitimate reason. Um, but the point here is that we all do have fears. And if there's one thing that we fear more than anything, uh, it's really fear of the unknown. Stepping out of our comfort zone, stepping out of our, our little boxes that we live in into the unknown scares us because, let's face it, we all like being comfortable, right? We, we, we prefer to be comfortable. Well, today we're going to take a look at the place where faith and fear intersect and it's, it's kind of like, I, I want to liken it to two roads um, where you have to choose to, to go on that road of fear. For some people, faith is kind of like a road that T-bones at fear, and that they'll, they'll do a U-turn or they'll pull off to the side of the road instead of turning onto it. For others, maybe it's a place where these two roads seamlessly merge, and they go on together for at least a season. But what do you do when your faith takes you head-on to the place where faith and fear intersect. Well, Mark, um, you know, looking at our text here, Mark has taken a little bit of a breather here in, uh, in chapter 4. We know that Mark's text, his, his writing, is kind of characterized by a lot of action, right? We saw that in the first three chapters, that he's just going boom, 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 one scene to the next, to the next, to the next, and immediately so on and so forth, and immediately so on and so forth. So there's a lot of action but chapter 4 has really been characterized by a lot of dialogue. This is the biggest dialogue that we've seen so far in our text. Uh, Jesus has been speaking in parables about the kingdom of God. And specifically, he's been uh, illustrating the kingdom of God uh, by talking about sowing seeds. And that's how he's been illustrating these truths about God's kingdom. Now, if we were to, to zoom out, for a moment, and look at everything that we've covered so far in the book of Mark. Um, look at the development of his narrative. We've actually seen three themes. He's been, he's been working so far on, on three themes, with each one leading into the next. Uh, first, Mark started out by developing the theme of the authority of Jesus. We saw that Jesus has this authority over 
basically everything. And that was the first theme that Mark started to cover. The, the second theme that Mark started to, uh, to cover, or to develop, was the theme of obedience to Jesus. If you remember, he told his followers, you are my family. Whoever does the will of God, whoever is obedient, that is my family. And third, Mark has started developing the theme of sowing seed, which flows right out of the theme of obedience. I mean, do you, do you see how these three themes lead into one another, how they're all tied together? Looking at these three themes, the authority of Christ, uh, obedience on our behalf, and sowing seed, if we look at them in reverse, we see that if we're not sowing seeds, it's because we're not really being obedient. Uh, if we're not obedient, maybe it's because we don't recognize, or at least we don't yield to, the authority of Christ. But today we're going to see in the middle of Mark's development um, that, that he's uh, of, of the seed, that he's actually continuing that in a real life parable. So with that in mind, let's see how Mark continues to develop this theme of sowing seed. We start in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and 36, where we read, on that day, now remember, on that day, we're talking about the day where he's doing all these parables, right? That, this is the same day that he's been teaching all these parables about the kingdom. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, just to, to, remi- to refresh our memories here, This is the same day that he's been teaching parables, right? And Mark told us that uh, Jesus has been explaining the parables to them as they needed privately, and he's been giving them basically as much as they can possibly understand, uh, as much as they could wrap their minds around. That's how much Jesus was teaching them. And as many people as there were there, and as much talking and explaining as he was doing, Jesus at this point is exhausted, I mean, doing that kind of teaching for that many hours is exhausting. Now, I don't know about you, but when I reach the end of a day, when I'm mentally and physically exhausted, uh, you know, I I just want to kind of veg out in front of the TV or in front of the computer or or something and just do something mindless for a little while, something that doesn't require a lot of me uh, mentally or physically. Well, this this day actually very well may have started back in chapter 3 with Jesus returning home. If you remember, he he returned home from being on top of the mountain where he named his 12 disciples. So it may have started back then when his family came and tried to pull him away from his work. Um, If if that's the case, it's been a long day. Remember, his family came and said, you know, Jesus is is crazy. He's he's out of his mind. That's the only reason he's doing all this. So, So they came in and they're trying to pull him away from his ministry. It looks like there hasn't been a break uh, since then. Really, if you you look at it as it all flows together, it looks like it's been a long day. Uh, So Jesus is tired. And he got tired, just like everybody else. That's that's a look, a glimpse at uh, at his human side. The multitudes have been pressuring him. They've been asking him questions. And he's just ready to get some rest. Who can blame him? Uh, But after this mentally uh, and probably physically exhausting day, Jesus says, hey guys, let's let's take a trip to the other side. The other side of what? He doesn't say. Physically and, and geographically speaking, Jesus wants to take them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to a place that's about roughly five miles away. Uh, That's where he wants to take them physically and geographically speaking, but I'd also say that it's possible that he's speaking metaphorically as well. Uh, He's spent the day trying to give them a glimpse of the kingdom of God, 
but he's about to take them to a place where they're going to get a glimpse of a place that is as far away as you can possibly get from the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus is going to show them a glimpse of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is going to try to get some rest in, and he knows that you know my, my best chance for doing that is to take a boat to the other side. I'm going to sleep. You guys just stay in control, and when we get there, we'll be on the other side because I want to show you some stuff. Now, Mark's narrative is actually the only one that tells us that there were other boats. Uh, he, he adds that there were other boats with him. And this actually supports the idea that Mark is recording the words of Peter as Peter is recalling the scene, because it's likely that Jesus was teaching these parables. Remember, he was just off the shore in a boat, and it's likely that he was in Peter and Andrew's boat. Um, So uh, when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, he was probably talking to Peter. Uh, And Peter probably remembered some other people happened to hop in their boats. Some of the other followers happened to to have boats as well. And so they hopped in their boats as well, and they're following them over. Now, one of the benefits that we get when we read this, one one of the things that we can uh, be assured of when we read this, is that this is not something that somebody was just making up. Because if, this, if there were no other witnesses there, let's say it was just Peter and Jesus, and Peter says, this is what happened. You know, you might say, well, how do we know that really happened? How do we know that Peter wasn't really dreaming? How do we know that this is something that really happened? Well, we know that this really happened because Peter and the disciples are there, and there are all these other boats that are out there. So that, that's kind of interesting to note, that, that Mark is the only one who, uh, who tells us that there are other boats out there, but that's an important detail because what happens next is very real, and there were several, uh, probably dozens of people who were there to corroborate the testimony. So let's look at what happens next. Verses 37 to 39. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Here we find another detail, by the way, that we don't find in the other gospel narratives, that Jesus is asleep in the stern on a cushion. Now, the only reason you'd give all those extra details is if somebody was actually there. So again, it looks like this is Mark recording Peter. It seems like that that helps uh, solidify the case for that theory. But not surprisingly, there are actually a few commentators, you know, and as you go back to the mid-19th century, you'll find a whole bunch of them, who dismiss this whole story altogether. They allegorize this story. Why? Because nobody can calm uh, calm a real storm, right? Nobody can really do what it says Jesus does here, uh, right? He can calm a figurative storm, maybe, right? No, no. Remember, there are plenty of eyewitnesses here. This wouldn't be made up if there are eyewitnesses. The more eyewitnesses there are, the more likely somebody's testimony is to be true. So, yeah, this is something that really, literally happened. And it's actually somewhat odd that, uh, that we find that it's evening, and a storm rises up. And that's because uh, on the Sea of Galilee, when there are fierce storms that come in, it's usually uh, late morning 
or uh, to late uh, to late afternoon. It usually doesn't happen in uh, in the evening. See, storms become violent when there's a collision of air systems, right? When you have hot air and cold air, or maybe you just have a, a system of hot air coming in, and you get a violent storm. Um, but in the evening, the, the cool air has usually settled in. It's been settled in for a while. But what we're going to see is that this isn't just any ordinary violent storm. Uh, these are hurricane-like winds. The boat is filling up with water almost instantly. And it, it's, it's just a violent storm that they get caught in. It's so violent that these experienced fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, these are all guys who come from fishing families. These experienced fishermen are freaking out. They're scared half to death. They think they're going to die. And there's Jesus sleeping in the stern on a cushion through all of this. And again, what we see here is Jesus' human nature. He is so completely exhausted that he's just sleeping through the whole thing. It didn't even stir him. And so the, the disciples finally wake him up saying, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're about to die now, when I, when I read this, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, what did they think that Jesus was going to do? I mean, we, we see here, they don't get it yet. The, these guys don't understand exactly what Jesus can do. And we, we're going to see that they're going to freak out when he calms the storm, too. But, so, so, so what are they thinking that Jesus is going to be able to do when they wake him up? I, I don't know. They're, they're just freaking out, and they're saying, hey, you know, you, you want to wake up and experience death? Or, I, I don't know. I don't know. But put yourself in their shoes. They're, they're pretty clueless at this point. Uh, if they thought that Jesus could stop a catastrophe from happening, they wouldn't have felt any kind of, of urgency to, uh, to wake him up like this. But they think that they're about to die, and so they wake him up finally. Does Jesus care if they die? Come on. Of course he cares if they die. Of course he cares. Is, is he going to let them die? No, the fact that he is in the boat with them ensures their safe arrival on the other side, right? But in the midst of this situation, in the midst of their fear, what they're doing here is they're not really questioning Jesus, they're criticizing him. They're accusing him. They're questioning his goodness. They start thinking, you know, considering where we are right now, I'm starting to wonder if Jesus really cares that I'm in this situation. Is he indifferent? Is he indifferent? They're, they're doubting his love for them. They're doubting it. They, they haven't fully experienced it yet, and so they're asking questions. They're not sure that Jesus loves them enough to save them. Anybody ever been there? I have. I have. And that, that's why this is one of my favorite passages. I, I have been there. Maybe we don't ask Jesus about, you know, Jesus, don't you care that I'm about to die? You know, maybe we're not in that kind of situation. Maybe our question is, Jesus, don't you care that my marriage is falling apart? Or Jesus, don't you care that I have no idea how I'm going to make ends meet this month or next or the next? Don't you care? Where are you, Jesus, when I need you? Now, those really aren't questions as much as they are complaints and criticisms, accusations, questioning Jesus' goodness, not questioning his presence, questioning his goodness. The problem that the disciples faced is actually one of the same problems that we get faced with today. See, a lot of people claim 
to believe that Jesus can get them through, through any situation. But then your, your trust in him gets, gets tested. It gets thrown in the fire. And it burns up. You, you find out what your trust is really made of in the midst of these trials. And what we're seeing here is that all they've got is ashes. Ashes. They're not completely trusting Jesus at all. When you peel back the facade in a difficult situation, you find somebody who professes to believe one thing, but in their actions, they live out something totally different. Trusting in Jesus doesn't ensure smooth sailing in life. To the contrary, you can expect storms. You can expect to hit some rough, stormy seas that will test your trust for Jesus. And that's when you see what your faith, what your trust in him is really made of. J.I. Packer is a great writer, great theologian. He, He says this, for proof of the truth that following God's guidance brings trouble, look at the life of the Lord Jesus himself. No human life has ever been so completely guided by God And no human being has ever qualified so comprehensively for the description, a man of many sorrows. End quote. So you can expect adversity. You can expect storms, proverbial storms, when you're following Jesus. But there's a principle that I want you to remember, and that's this. Smooth seas have never made a skilled sailor. Smooth seas have never made a skilled sailor. Think about it this way. If you're a student, what makes you cram as much information into your mind as you possibly can, which results in you remembering this stuff and becoming smarter? Tests. (laughs) Tests. Tests really help you. It gives you motivation. It it shows the teacher where you are. It shows you where you are, too. But it also causes you to drive to become more intelligent because you want to pass the tests. Now, I, I told you guys before that I would propose that this is not just any ordinary storm. Remember that Jesus is taking his disciples straight into the midst of the kingdom of darkness. So this storm is actually Satan's way of saying, Jesus, you don't belong in my arena. Don't step foot in my arena. And so when Jesus wakes up, he simply says, hush, be still. And the storm is immediately over. In fact, the waters, the, the, the Greek indicates that the waters go so still it looks like a mirror. It's just still as can be. You never see water like that in, in a lake or in an ocean or, or a big body of water. You never see that. But this is kind of cool. Get this. Literally translated, what Jesus says here is be muzzled. Be muzzled. And it's actually, go back to chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Jesus was teaching in the temple, and this man with an unclean spirit identifies Jesus as the Son of God, and Jesus rebukes him, right? Jesus actually uses the same words there that he uses here toward the sea. Was Jesus addressing the man in chapter 1? No, he's addressing the unclean spirit. He's addressing the demon. Same thing here. He's using the same term. Here, but it gets translated differently, I guess because there's a different context. So no doubt, this storm is actually a satanic attack, which is warning Jesus and his disciples, turn back. Turn back now. I don't want you here. The enemy of God might be occupying earth for now, 
but it doesn't belong to him. It doesn't belong to him. It's not his. He has no jurisdiction. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, that, that is Jesus, he's talking about Jesus here, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It all belongs to him. It was all created for him. All things were created for him. This planet was created for him. This storm that they're in the middle of was created for him. This boat was created for him. It's all his. The enemy doesn't have any jurisdiction here. So when Jesus says, hush, be still, or be muzzled, it's not something that's up for negotiation because it's Jesus's. It's his jurisdiction. He's got the authority. And that leads me to, to, to the, the part that really broke my heart this week uh, as I was studying this. Uh, and that is that God's enemy is immediately obedient to him here. Instantly obedient to him. When Jesus says, hush, the waters go instantly calm. Satan doesn't hesitate to obey. And, and when I read that, I, I, I'm convicted. I, I'm struck with the fact that sometimes I hesitate to obey. I hesitate. I'll say, God, you know, isn't there, isn't there something else that you'd rather have me do? Is this really something that you want me to do? Let me pray about this a little bit more to discern your will. When it's, when it's black and white, this is something you need to be doing, and if you're being obedient, this is what you will do. And I hesitate when the enemy of God doesn't. And that just, that kills me. Who am I to be less obedient to God's commands than even Satan? Are, are you following me on this one? I hope you see the point because there are, all time, there are times when, when all of us, each one of us is disobedient. But maybe, maybe we hesitate. Maybe we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing, but we're not comfortable with it. Maybe we're afraid for whatever reason, and so we hesitate. But here's what we know. We might be hesitant more hesitant to, to obey God's commands than even God's enemies. But when we trust and follow Jesus, he counts us as his children nonetheless. How great must his love for us be? The Bible also tells us, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God is working all things. There's that term again. Remember, all things were created for him. God is working all things for the good of those who love God. So when we find ourselves in trying circumstances, when we find ourselves in the proverbial storms of life, when circumstances cause us to feel fear, hesitation, and maybe those fears and, and, and uh, discomforts cause us to, to question or, or criticize God, whatever the situation might be, it's something that God is using for our good, for our own good. Maybe it's to discipline us. Maybe it's to help us grow in virtues, patience, perseverance. But the principle that I want you to get here is this. The more difficult your situation is, the more difficult your situation is, the harder you'll cling to Jesus. The closer you should be drawn to Jesus. And the more you cling to Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. The more you become like him, the more God can use you. So 
So maybe when you find yourself in a difficult situation, instead of getting impatient with God or, or criticizing God or questioning God, maybe, maybe we should try to see things from His perspective. When, when we don't understand or we can't see from His perspective, maybe we just say, God, you know what? I have no idea what you are doing here. But I know that you're good. And that's enough for me. And I'll just trust in your goodness here. So thy will be done. Not my will. Thy will. Let's continue. Verses 40 and 41. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Basically, Jesus is calling them out in in two very simple questions. He's calling them out on everything that we've just covered. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him heal. They've seen that he has authority over the kingdom of darkness before. He's cast out unclean spirits before. They know that he has authority over the kingdom of darkness. That's one of the reasons that I think the, the scribes were saying, hey, he must be doing this by the power of Satan. Satan's casting out Satan, right? So they've seen all these things, and yet, even though they've seen all this stuff, they don't completely get it. If you read through all the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you'll find if you look for things that amaze Jesus, you'll find that two things amaze Jesus. Great faith and great disbelief. So the question really becomes, how are you going to amaze Jesus? Through great faith or through great disbelief? Which will you amaze him with? The question that Mark wants us to be asking here is this. We might say we have faith, but do our actions really reveal that we have that kind of faith? Do we see what's happened here and still fail to realize exactly who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing? See, now, now Jesus isn't saying that they shouldn't have feared. Fear is natural. Uh, it's something that God designed us to feel, designed us to experience to ensure our survival. Uh, but fear becomes an issue when it tempts us to stop trusting God. And when faith and fear intersect, instead of taking it on, we pull over to the side of the road. Or we do a U-turn. For whatever reason, we don't confront whatever our fear is. But the application here is for us to stay the course. Stay the course. Trust, obey, and follow Jesus. Don't let the enemy get you off track by using fear to manipulate you into disobedience. Don't use fear to manipulate you into disobedience. The boat won't sink and the storm won't last, as Ray Steadman said. And look at their response. Look at the response of the disciples. Is it, we, we saw that they were scared before, right? They thought that they were going to die before. But now it says they were very much afraid. <laughs> so, so what we see here is that Jesus scared them more. The power, the authority of Jesus scared them more than the thought of dying in a storm. You know what scared them? I don't think it was so much that he was able to you know, just make the storm go away, but that it was instant. Storms go away. They pass. I mean, that's a natural thing that would happen. But when it instantly goes calm, calm like the glass 
That's something that doesn't happen. Going from waves crashing over the sides of the boat to not even a ripple in the water. This miracle was so amazing. They were scared. They were very much afraid, it says. What we see here is that even though the disciples knew Jesus, they underestimated him. They underestimated him. Even if the wind and the sea obey him, how can I justify disobedience? That's the question that we have to be asking ourselves. If the wind and the sea, if the enemy of God is so quick to obey what Jesus says, how do we ever justify a moment of disobedience? We can't. Let's continue. On to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Now, let's say I ask you to give me a, 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 a verbal, um, uh, to articulate a picture of a crazy person. Could you do better than this? Uh, you know, is there anything that you would add to this to make him, uh, you know, seem a little bit crazier? I mean, the, the guy breaks chains and shackles apart. Uh, you know, what would he do to a person? You know, I get this picture of, you know, uh, you know the, the cartoons where, you know, somebody's arms get ripped off, you know, in SpongeBob or whatever. Th- that's the picture I get. Uh, what would he do to a person? I mean, this guy almost sounds like he couldn't be real because this guy is just such a lunatic. But Matthew was there, and Matthew tells the same story, with, with actually a few different, um, and, and fewer details, actually. For example, Matthew notes that there were actually two men, but Mark zeroes in on just the one man. Is there an inconsistency there? No. Mark's, Mark's, Mark never says, and there was only one man who was living out there. No, Mark is just zeroing in on this one man. Mark is more interested in this one guy than in the other, for whatever reason. He only gives detail about one of these two men. Uh, Luke's gospel actually adds something that's, uh, that's different, um, but is also consistent with Mark's story. Luke adds that the guy has been going around naked. He hasn't worn clothes uh, for many years or lived in a house for a long time. So there's plenty of good reason to reject the idea that Mark is uh, you know, doing, doing a fisherman thing here, embellishing a story. He's, he's not embellishing here in any way. He's actually you know, left a couple details out, remaining consistent with the other Gospels. Now, it's kind of ironic that this is the person that Jesus has taken his disciples to see, given the fact that this guy is crazy. And what was going on that morning? Jesus's family was accusing him of being crazy. So maybe this is kind of Jesus's way of saying, you want to see what crazy looks like? Let's, let's go to the other side. So this adds... Um, this adds a little bit of irony in a way, I guess. Uh, and we also have to remember that the setting is late evening. Um, you know, th- this is not something that happened in the middle of the day. Now, I don't know about you, but if it's dark outside or, you know, e- even late evening, so it's starting to get dark, 
Uh, I don't want to come face to face with some lunatic who's going around screaming, naked, cutting himself, just acting like a complete lunatic. So the element of fear here is multiplied several times over. Uh, Maybe the disciples don't even get out of the boats. It's almost like the disciples disappear here for this part of the text because it doesn't say anything about the disciples. So I kind of imagine they saw this guy and they're like, dude, I don't know about you. Jesus could take this guy on himself, but I'm staying right here. Get ready to row. So it's likely, you know, they're thinking, okay, obviously Jesus is trying to get us killed. Jesus is is bringing us to some place where we are going to die. But the point that I want to make here is that this man, this lunatic, who is possessed by the unclean spirit, represents somebody who is as far, if not farther, from God as anyone on the planet. There is nobody that I can find, that you can find, that anybody can find that would be less qualified for following Jesus based on his current and past state. From our standpoint, we'd say there's probably no better candidate for somebody who, for all appearances, looks like a completely lost cause. You could not do better than this guy. This guy is the biggest lost cause that we could find. You know what that means? It means that this guy looks like he would be a lot farther away from God than our friends who don't know Jesus, from our neighbors who don't know Jesus, hopefully from family members, but you know, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. Um, for those of you with a mother-in-law, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In fact, you know, what, I, what I, I'd, say, I'd say that you have probably never met anyone who looks like he's further away from God than this guy looks who looks like a, a, a less of a candidate for walking through the gates of heaven someday. Now, one of the most significant, biblically significant things that this guy is doing is he's living amongst the tombs. He's sleeping in the tombs. He's constantly around dead people, which renders him pretty much as unclean as a person can get, according to the law of Moses. Um, but, but that doesn't really matter because he's isolating himself anyway. He's been living kind of alone, or not just kind of, he's been living alone for a long time. So it's not like you know, he's bringing diseases back to the people, but uh, you know, he, he's isolated. What, is, what does God say, by the way, about somebody, about a man being alone? Think back to Genesis. What, what does God say? It's not good for a man to be alone. Those are the conditions that this guy's been living in, though. This man with an unclean spirit is certainly unclean set for, as, by the standards set forth in the Old Testament, and he's alone. He's alone. He's isolated. So the picture that Mark has given us makes it completely obvious that the unclean spirits have been really destructive in this guy's life. That's why he's been cutting himself with rocks. Maybe, maybe he was trying to kill himself. Maybe he was so sick of, of all the torment that he's trying to kill himself. Maybe it's some kind of pagan bloodletting ritual, satanic uh, bloodletting ritual. Either way, it's destructive, and, and it's cruel. It's cruel for these unclean spirits to be causing him to do this. Now, why some people want to mess with things like the occult? Why, why, things, why people want to mess with things like demons and unclean spirits is beyond me. And yet, look at how popular the occult is. Wicca, uh, anybody in, in here ever heard of Wicca? Wicca is the fastest growing religion in the United States right now. 
if you can believe that. It is the fastest growing religion in the United States. It's a religion that glorifies, among other things, human sexuality and the freedom that we have for human sexuality. And I don't think that it's any kind of coincidence at all that as Wicca has grown, so has pornography. People read their horoscopes daily. You know, it's right inside the front page of the newspaper. Or if you're on Facebook, hey, you can, you can get an app that puts it right on your, your profile page every single day. That's messing with the occult. Uh, people play with the Ouija board uh, made by, I, I think it's Parker Brothers, if I'm not mistaken, in an attempt to contact the dead. And it's, it's all marketed. All of these things are marketed as fun and games. You know, it's not really hurting anybody. But what we see here is that messing with unclean spirits is hurting people. It is dangerous, dangerous stuff. You do not want to mess with the occult. You don't want to mess with these demonic, unclean spirits. But look at how this man responds when he sees Jesus, when he greets Jesus. Verses 6 to 8. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, this is actually kind of a strange passage, and it gives us a deeper understanding of the the, the torment that this man has been living in. First, he runs up and he bows before Jesus. So this is actually a, a type of, a way of worship, bowing before somebody. But then he tries to get Jesus, he, while he's bowing in, you know, in this posture of worship, he tries to get Jesus to go away. What business do we have with each other? In other words, why are you here, Jesus? It's time for you to go. I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And it's strange Given this, this man's posture and Jesus' response, it's strange that anyone would not see this as a clear indication that Jesus is God, and he's claiming to be God. This man with an unclean spirit, he's in a posture of worship against his own will. The spirits, the unclean spirits, w- wouldn't choose to bow before the creator of the universe. No, this is, this is something that's going on against his will, and nobody is worthy of worship, but God alone. When the Apostle John, for example, in the book of Revelation, he bows down before somebody other than God, and he gets scolded, he gets rebuked. I'm not God. No, anytime an angel or or something like that gets bowed before, they say, no, it, it only goes to God. And Jesus is okay with this guy bowing down before him. He doesn't uh, rebuke him. He doesn't correct him. So the fact that he doesn't is actually a very subtle way of Jesus acknowledging, yeah, I am God in the flesh. Notice also that this man hasn't asked to be healed. Nobody said, hey, Jesus, why don't you go over to that guy and tell that unclean spirit to come out? No, this is something that Jesus has initiated on his very own. Look also at how um, this man with the unclean spirit addresses Jesus as son of the Most High God. Now, if you know anything about you know, the Old Testament, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, you know that the Israelites had known God as Jehovah. But the pagan nations throughout the Old Testament referred to him as El Elyon, Most High God. See, the pagan culture worshipped a plethora 
of these idols and false gods. But this is a recognition that Jehovah reigns supreme over every idol and over every false god. And we should note, it's also a very accurate description. There is nothing, there is nobody higher than him. He is sovereign, creator of the universe. But immediately after acknowledging Jesus' identity, the man says, I implore you by God, do not torment me. I actually don't think that this is the demon speaking. I actually think that this is the man speaking at this point. As we're going to see here in just a minute, the man and this unclean spirit that he's possessed by seamlessly take turns talking, which is kind of weird, and it's kind of, it makes it kind of hard to follow, but they take turns talking. So I think it's possible that it's the man saying this, do not torment me, I implore you by God. I think it's possible that it's the man saying this, begging for mercy from Jesus. Let's continue, verses 9 to 13. And he, Jesus, was asking him, the man with the unclean spirit, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So Jesus starts off by asking for the name. Whose name? Whose name is he asking for? The man or the unclean spirit? I actually think he's probably asking for the name of the man. But the response is interesting. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I was raised by an English professor. And I, I don't think that, that I'm the only one that recognizes that there's, there's some improper grammar going on here. They've broken some of the, the, the rules of grammar with this sentence. It's correctly translated, though. It's just improper grammar uh, on, on the surface. Switching from the singular, or, uh, from, from the singular to the plural Kind of conf- it's kind of confusing. It kind of confuses things. It doesn't make sense. A normal, grammatically correct response would be, our name is Legion, right? And I think that's the reason, um, I, I think that the reason that there's the switch is because first it's the man speaking, my name is, and then he gets cut off by this unclean spirit who says, Legion, for we are many. Grammatically, that would make sense. But notice that then it says, and he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In other words, this man is begging Jesus on behalf of the demons, on behalf of this unclean spirit. It doesn't say, and they were imploring him. It says, and he began to implore him. Then the demons speak, and and Mark makes it clear, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. So do you see how this is going back and forth out of this one man's mouth? It's kind of like they're seamlessly taking turns talking. It's a case of like kind of spiritual schizophrenia, I guess. Uh, Luke tells us a little bit more. He tells us that the demons were begging not to be thrown into the abyss. The swine would be their alternative option of choice, I guess. But look what Jesus does. He accepts their proposal, but negates their purposes. 
He accepts their proposal but negates their purposes. You see that? They, they end up back in the abyss anyway because these pigs, these swine, they run into the sea and they drown back into the abyss. So Jesus didn't send them into the abyss. They sent themselves there. What Mark wants us to see here is not only how Jesus is capable of setting someone free, but how deeply and how incredibly Jesus loves the most desperate, God-hating person you can imagine. He loves this man so much, he has intentionally sought him out of the kingdom of darkness. There have been some people who you know, almost protest this scene. You know, 2,000 pigs, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pigs. You know, that's really mean to animals. You know? I'm sure this is something PETA would, you know, if they could revise, if you get the PETA version of the Bible, this would all be like wiped out. Um, I don't think there really is a PETA version of the Bible, by the way. Um, but yeah, 2,000 pigs also would have cost a fortune. So somebody's riches just went straight into the ocean. But what we see here is that Jesus has such a high value. He puts such a high value on this one life. This one life. He would have let a million pigs die for this one man. This one man. That's how much he values them. He values them more than any worldly fortune or treasure. Now, this isn't the end of the day, uh, and this isn't the end of the story, so let's wrap this up. Um, verses 14 to 17. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave the region, leave their region. So the people from, from the nearby towns or villages show up to see what's happened in, in, at this scene out in the countryside here. And what they see is this man who's been running around for years, naked, insane, isolated for so many years, was suddenly in his right mind, clothed. And, and, and the reaction of the people? They're scared. They're frightened. Remember the response of the disciples when Jesus calmed the sea? Frightened. They were frightened by the control that Jesus had over nature. Now Jesus is, has, has frightened people by showing the control that he has over the supernatural. You know why I think they're scared? I think they're scared because they recognize who Jesus is too. I think, I think they are starting to get a glimpse of, of exactly who Jesus is and they don't want any part of it. They don't want a piece of him. Their fear causes them to make a huge mistake asking Jesus to leave their region. Is it their region? Come on. And they're not really just asking him. Jesus, would it be okay with you if you just you know, went back to where you came from. No, they're begging him, Jesus, please leave our region. See, unlike their pagan gods, they can't create him, they can't control him, they can't contain him. 
He's bigger than anything they've ever imagined. When a person worships anything other than Jesus, the person feels like they've got a little bit of control over it. Not here. With Jesus, he's got authority like these people have never seen before. And they believe it. They've seen what the results are. Let's continue. Verses 18 to 20. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now if we look at this, it almost looks like Jesus has just kind of brushed the guy off. Like he's, he's forgotten all about him. No, he hasn't. At this point, I think he's waiting for the man to approach him. He's opened, opened the, 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 the door for this guy. He's opened a window in a burning house for this guy to get out of, and he's waiting for the guy to get out of the window. Does that make sense? All of a sudden, this guy is one of the people who can both see and perceive. He can hear and understand. And so Jesus is waiting for him to take the initiative with Jesus, waiting for the man to approach him. And this man is begging Jesus not to leave him, to bring him along. And so it's, it's kind of interesting, curious if nothing else, that Jesus denies this guy's request. Instead of bringing the guy along, instead of bringing this, this man along, Jesus tells him to go home and tell people what God has done for you home. That's a place this guy probably hasn't been in a long, long time. Now, what's Jesus doing here? What's the point of all this? Is it just to save this one man? I'd say it is, yeah, it is to save this man. He knew that that's what he was going into. But given the context, this is something of a real-life extension of the parable of sowing. This is what it looks like when you take this parable and you put it into real life application. So he's sowing this seed in this huge field of Decapolis. He's also instructing this man to sow seed in the huge open field of Decapolis. Was this guy scared? I'm sure that he is. Decapolis is a huge place. This guy was ostracized. They they knew what he had done. And he's probably scarred from head to toe. He's not a pretty-looking guy, so he, he, and he probably knows that, so he's probably scared. He's coming out of years of isolation, but his fear, this is the point, his fear doesn't prevent him from acting out of obedience because he sees and he perceives. He hears and he understands. Do you see how this ties the three themes of Mark together? The authority of Jesus demands obedience. Obedience means action, in this case, sowing seeds. And you know what? Jesus asks for nothing more from us. Do we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? If we do, it should reflect in our actions. We should be obedient to him. If we refuse to be obedient, maybe we're letting our fear tempt us into disobedience. Or maybe we just don't believe in Jesus as much as we claim to. Maybe we're scared to act in obedience, but that's when we need to remember. The ship won't sink. The storm won't last. 
If Jesus can use a guy like this for expanding his kingdom, he can use anyone who's willing to be obedient to him. You see, Jesus isn't looking for the most intellectual people. He's not just looking for seminary graduates or philosophers. He's not looking for the most talented people. He can do a lot more with the people who are just obedient to him. And his instructions to us are very similar to the instructions he gives to this guy. Go. Tell people about Jesus. See, you are a seed. You're like a seed planted among your your friends, your family, your neighbors. This is a lesson about Jesus' authority, responding in obedience, and living out that obedience, not allowing fear to slow us down or to prevent the kingdom from growing in us or through us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. Because each one of us, in a way, can probably look at this story and see ourselves right in the middle of it. What an amazing thing that you have done for us What an amazing love you must have for us to pull us out of the kingdom of darkness. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you sent Jesus to bridge the gap between us. That we don't have to continue in the war against you in our hearts. That our rebellion can stop because you've brought peace just like you brought peace to this lunatic. Lord, we know that if you can do something with him, you can do something with us. And so I pray that you would teach us to be obedient to what you command in your word and obedient to what your Holy Spirit convicts us of in our hearts. Thank you for this lesson, Lord. We love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.